All right. I'm going to speak today about um, being a people of vision. You know, everyone in this room is either already a leader or they're wanting to go into leadership. And so I want to speak about vision because I believe being visionary women is crucial to knowing our full destiny and to walking in that full destiny. And so I want to talk today about the principles of vision. Um, before I do, I hate doing this because it's my face on the front, but basically we've got a, a little book here, as, which Sue just read the back from. Um, it's five pounds and it's just, it'll only take a couple of hours to read, but it's just full of lots of little stories of what God's done of the miraculous provision. I'll share some stories today so you'll get a little flavor, but just the incredible things that Christ has done. And if you know anyone who's got a passion for missions, whether that's local or global, I'd encourage them to pick it up because it is, it, it hopefully will bless you and encourage you. Um, but I want to talk this morning about being a people of vision. I've got five points, so I'm breaking the mold of three points. I've got five whole points. Number one is going to be about preparation, so we're in the spirit zoo. Number two is about provision. Number three is protection. Number four is power. And number five is purpose. So when I get to purpose, you can breathe a sigh of relief. It's over. Whew. We can go and get a coffee and a cake. Hallelujah, Jesus. So Proverbs 29 verse 18 is a famous scripture. It says, without a vision, the people perish. And truly, when we're women lead in leadership, when we're leading what God's put on our life, it's vital that we're not just doing it in what we think is the right thing to do, but actually that we've got a clear vision from God of what we need to do. It's not about man strategy as much as often the the... Uh, academic side of man is useful and obviously God gives us a brain for a reason um, but actually when we have a vision from God it completely changes everything and it sets a whole new tone and it sets a whole new structure to our life in 2006 I actually had a vision now I'm not one of them weird people who have visions every other day I, I don't I've had I think two in my whole life but I had a vision in 2006 which completely changed my life and I saw a vision of a village, and in the village there was lots of little houses for orphans. There was a school, there was a church, there was a medical center. But in the vision, the light from this little village was spread out, and everyone from the surrounding areas would come to this village to see what they'd got, and it was the light of the gospel. And that vision completely became the blueprint of everything that we've done today with One by One. It completely set the agenda, his agenda, not our agenda, his agenda, of how we were supposed to go in and take the land. I'm just going to show a quick video so you can get a bit of a flavor of what we do. This one's going to be the One by One. I think it's called It's Not Randomly. Um, but if you want to, not that one. It's going to be the other one. You'll get to see the other one in a minute and have a good laugh at Matt's accent. It is not just an orphanage, it is my home. It's not just a school, it's my future. Will we leave behind the innocent to breathe? It is not just a meal, it is my nutrition. On the run, when our lives have only begun. It is not just a mosquito net, it is my health. I am not just an orphan, I am a son. I am not just an orphan, I am a daughter. You are not just a sponsor, you are my family. It's not just a donation, it is my life. It's my life, it's my life. It is my life. It is my life. It's my life. It is my life. It's my life. Thank you. 
I've seen that video, I can't even tell you how many times, but every time I, I just love seeing their faces. Those babies right there, the apple of my eye. They are incredible children who, I don't say this lightly, they are the ones teaching me what it is to be a follower of Christ. These kids... Just in 2012, we took them in, and in 2012, they didn't know anything about Jesus. They'd been, they'd had horrific, horrific backgrounds of things they shouldn't even know the concept of, let alone have gone through it. The social workers' report said words like torture, rape, starvation, just horrific, horrific things. And when the kids first came in, it was horrible because we saw children who literally had no hope. You would ask them, you know, kids have that spark in their eye. And when the children first moved in, there was no spark. There was nothing there. And you would say to them, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they had no concept of that because their only concept was, I just want the next bowl of rice. When, when's the next meal coming? Because they were just in a survival mode, not in a living mode. Fast forward three years, these children now are incredibly in love with Jesus. We had the honor of baptizing him in the dirtiest little lake. So if anybody moans to me that the baptismal water is a bit cold, I'm going to take them out to Bumala with me, let them see the lake that I have to stand in to baptize my kids who go under the water with all kinds of things in that water. But they just love Jesus so much. And now they're the ones that go with me into the village, preaching the gospel. They're the ones that lay hands on the sick and see them healed. I've got a little girl. In fact, it was the first girl that appeared. She's called Jessica, the little girl who said, it's not just an orphanage, it's my home. I very rarely call it an orphanage. I do to some people just so they know what I'm talking about. But to me, it's not an orphanage. It's a home. It's a home and we're a, we're a big family, we're a very big family, but we're a family who love each other like brothers and sisters. And um, Jessica is HIV positive and without a miracle, she, she will die from what she has. But when I take her into the village with me and she lays hands on the sick, they are always healed. I remember one lady had, um, she'd got chronic chest pains and stomach pains and she'd had these pains for three years for every single day. And we'd gone and we were telling about Jesus and she didn't want to know. I was telling about Christ really loves you and, you know, I'm not into religion. I don't want to know, you know, you guys are just all religious and weird. I don't want to know. And then she had just happened, we were just carried on talking and chatting away and she just happened to mention this pain that she had. Immediately, Jessica, with no prompting, went and laid hands on her. And immediately, the pain that this woman had had every single day, consistently for three years, went. Well, suddenly she's like, who is Jesus? Who is this man? Now, Jessica, she's 14 and she's got a, a, a disease that will kill her without a miracle from God. Yet never once have I seen in her a reaction of, well, my need's greater. What I've got is more greater than her stomach ache. You know, I've got something worse. Never once have I seen a glimmer of that in her. And I watched these children go through things that... As an adult, I don't know if I would have gone through quite so well. And these children are just truly, truly a blessing to my life. I absolutely love them. We've got 60 of them that live in the home permanently. They're, we're going through the process of becoming their legal guardians. So we have 61 kids. I'm looking good for 61, right? And uh, one white one, the rest are black. So not looking quite so good for just one. But anyway. And... Um, and then we've got, we've taken in, we had a lot of kids come. In fact, I had one girl in particular that when she came to the home, she came with a false death certificate of her parents. And she'd come a couple of times trying to get into the home. And my social, we have a, a social worker there to verify each child. And he kept saying, no, she's got parents and sending her away. She came back a third time with a fake death certificate. And it was clearly a fake because you could see the Tipex original name out and everything. It was like quite clearly a fake. But it just struck a card in me of why would a little girl go to such lengths to get into an orphanage, which people would normally look down on. They wouldn't want to be in that. And the levels of poverty of where we work are so severe that children are literally going without meals. Education, primary education itself is free, but the parents have to pay for the uniform or the textbooks. And for a parent that can't afford the next meal, saving up for a uniform is way down the priority list. And so we were encountering children who literally had no hope. And so we decided to open up the home, open up the school for all these other kids. So we've got about 150 kids in our care now. And basically the, the other kids, we call them our home-based children because they're based at home. We like it simple. And if you know me, you'll know we like it simple. 
And um, yeah, so we've got about 110 home-based children who just, they come and go, they come first thing in the morning, they receive their three meals, they get their education, we provide them clothes and medical support, and then they go back home to their families at night. Um, but to do that, it costs a lot. And I'm learning in God to depend on his faith. But if you want to sponsor a child, we have a table at the back. If you want to sponsor a child, it's £18 a month. That doesn't cover the true costs, but it goes towards it. And you can write to the child. You can come out and visit the child. You can send Christmas cards, Christmas presents. You can really develop a relationship. And as you saw from the video, our kids, for children who, some of them are total orphans where both parents died. Others are single orphans. But when one parent died, the other parent abandoned them. And for children who've been abandoned by the people who should have loved them most in the world, to suddenly be accepted and loved by someone miles away, it's brought so much healing to them. And they love writing to their sponsors. A lot of them have got pictures of their sponsors by their beds, and it's just beautiful. So if you want to become a part of the one-by-one family, we've got a table at the back with some kids that still need sponsors. So please come and see us afterwards. But I want to talk this morning about vision, or this afternoon even. I was in America this week, so my time zone is completely confused. I've been going to bed at like four in the morning. Last night, I thought I'd done so well. I got to sleep at about half one, two-ish, and I thought, okay, I'm not, that's not, it's going to be okay. Except Josiah, my little boy's called Josiah, he's four, and he burst into my bedroom at about half six this morning. Not good. So anyway, so my time zone's kind of all mumble jumbled. But this afternoon, I'm going to bring a message about being a people of vision. So the first point is being prepared. Now, God spoke to me. I, um, when I was a young girl, I actually wanted to go and study law. Um, I wanted to, to be a lawyer. I loved Jesus, but I wanted a nice big house. And I wanted a nice car. And I wanted to wear nice business suits. And children did not come into that mix. Thank you very much. At all. Um, however, what I did love was different cultures. And so at the age of 18, I found myself on a missions trip to Romania, ironically working with children. And I'd not gone because I had this passion for orphans. I'd gone because I just loved different food, different dialects. Excuse my accent, by the way. I know I'm ridiculously northern. I went, in America last this week, they thought I was Scottish because I am so northern, apparently. Um, so please excuse my accent, but I enjoy different accents, different languages, um, different food. And so I'd gone on the mission trip with my church as really a holiday, I'll admit. Don't ever say that to me, but that's what I did when I was 18. And, um, so I'm on this missions trip and all of a sudden the voice of God spoke to my heart. Now I, I, known God my whole life. I was grew up, brought up in a Christian family. I got saved at the age of nine, filled with the Holy Spirit at 14. You know, I loved God, but I'd never heard him speak directly to my heart like he did when I was 18. And he said that you're going to run a children's home. Now I was on this missions trip with another girl called Becky and she, her dream, my dream was to be a lawyer. Her dream was to be a children's evangelist. And you know, some people are just really good with children. They've got one of them larger than lifetime characters. And I was like, he got the wrong Becky. She's the one. She would be way better from the job. But you know, God knows us better than we know ourselves. And actually, the thought of law now doesn't interest me in the slightest. And yet my babies bring me alive. When I'm out in Kenya, just, it's like something bubbles up and I come alive. It's just, it's where I'm destined, you know, I love it. Um, but God told me at the age of 18, I'd run a children's home. What do you do with that? I came back and really excitedly told everybody, this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, yeah, I had no plan. I had no idea what the next step was. So a year went by and nothing happened. And then another year went by and I was kind of doing short term missions trip and trying to learn from other people already doing it, but nothing appearingly was happening. And over a 13-year period, nothing, and I say nothing in brackets because a lot happened, but nothing appearingly happened until all of a sudden the children's home. And in that 13-year gap, I had every single voice come to me, voices of friends saying, well, if God's told you, then why don't you just book a flight to Timbuktu, just land somewhere and build something? And then I had the voice of the enemy saying, well, did God say, are you sure you didn't just have a bit too much cheese? Did God really say? 
And I would often question myself too, because I'd never heard God speak to me very clearly before. And so over 13 years, 13 years is a long way, long time to wait, particularly when you're 18. If you'd have told me at 18, it's not going to happen for 13 years, I'd have been like, are you joking? Are you kidding me? But you know, all the way through the Bible, we see a preparation period going on. Joseph waited 13 years. At the age of 17, Joseph had a dream. And in this dream, he was shown this greatness of people bowing down to him and that he was going to be a leader of leaders. And yet, everything that happened after that point went opposite. So he found himself in a ditch, abandoned by his own family. Then he was sold into, he was sold into slavery from the ditch. Then he went into prison. I mean, everything seemed to go in the opposite direction of this dream he'd had. It was completely the opposite of what God was saying. And yet actually in those 13 years, Joseph's character changed and he had the ability to then lead a nation because of what he'd gone through in that 13 years. Abraham, he had to wait 25 years. He was 75 when God told him he'd have a kid. 75. Let's not put this as a story. This is real life. 75. You know, if my mum and dad told me they were going to have another baby, I think I'd be having words. He was 75. Crikey. And God promised him he would be made into a great... There's hope yet. There is hope still. Um, she's like, I don't want it, I don't want it. Um, that God promised him is going to be a great nation. And yet actually it was 25 years before he even had the Isaac. And the story of Abraham and Isaac really was one that resonated with me because I was determined, Abraham had a genuine promise from God about it being um, father of, of nations, but nothing appearingly was happening. And so in man's wisdom, he went and made the promise of God happen in his way. And actually he gave birth to Ishmael. And I was so determined that I would hold on to that promise of God and not rush it in my way, do things the way I thought made sense because I didn't want to give birth to an Ishmael. I wanted to wait for my Isaac. And for 25 years, Abraham waited for his Isaac. Moses waited 40 years. David waited 15 years from the point where Samuel anointed him as king. It was 15 years. Imagine the day after being anointed as king. The day after that. There on your eagle throne, thinking people are going to bow down to me. No, you're sent back out to the field, you're back with the sheep. The reality of that must have been harsh to walk through and hard to walk through. But for 15 years, he waited to become the king of Judah. It was then another seven years until he became the king of Israel. So 22 years he waited. Jesus waited 30. And you know, sometimes in the the waiting for a promise of God can be the hardest thing to walk through. It can be the hardest thing to not rush on and do it your way, but to wait for the true vision that God's given. But if we will just wait, the blessing comes with that because then his true opportunity comes. Psalms 27 verse 14 says, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. When a verse says something twice, listen, wait. Isaiah 49 verse 2 says, He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He has made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. You know, you might be like feeling like you've been forgotten. Like God's given you a promise or you've got a vision for your life. But year after year after year of the mundane, of the going to work and just being faithful in the little. Year after year after years passing by and you're thinking, what is going on? This is not what I imagined. But let me just tell you, you're in God's quiver. You're in his quiver right now. And if you will wait for the right time, he's going to reach back into that quiver. A quiver is a bag that they would have on the back, on the shoulder, where they would store all the bows and arrows. And if you will just wait in that appointed time, he will pull you out of his quiver and launch you. And your arrow will be sharper than if it was if you'd been launched immediately. Because your character has been molded and you've been shaped by the circumstances and things that God's doing in you whilst you're waiting. So that waiting period isn't... It isn't something to just rush through to get to the main agenda. It is the main agenda because it's in those years that character has been formed and things within you are changing. The 13 years for me were very, very different. It was an incredible, incredible time. At the time, I felt frustration because I wanted to get going. And at the time, I felt self-doubt and everything else that goes through your head when you're waiting for something. But actually, what God did... I loved God. I loved God with all my heart. But 
you can love God to an extent and come to church week in, week out. But actually, when you fall in love with Jesus, there's a change that comes. And he kind of wooed me in a way like I can't even begin to tell you this afternoon. And I just fell utterly in love with my saviour. It was more, I think I'd always seen him as my master and my lord. And so I kind of viewed him in an, uh, he is my master and lord, obviously, but I kind of viewed him in this harsh way, I think. Growing up in church, I'd been told what you should and shouldn't do. And I kind of got this perception of God and how I had to please him. And then all of a sudden he wooed me and I fell in love with him. And all of a sudden he became my best friend and he became the lover of my soul. And everything within me began to change. And that 13 years period was a a blessing from God. And I'm so glad he forced me to wait because in that waiting I changed. The second point is provision. In John 6, verse 5 to 14, I just want to read a few verses. He says, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wage to buy enough bread for each one to just have a bite. Another of the disciples, Andrew, (coughs) sorry, I've got a cold at the moment. Simon Peter's brother spoke up. He said, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far can they go against so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. There was about 5,000 men. Jesus looked and took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed them to all who were seated. To whoever many wanted. Oh, thank you. Jesus gave thanks and distributed to all who were seated as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them into 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left by those who had eaten them. And after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come to the world. That's a, a story that you often hear in Sunday school about the little boy with his loaves and fishes. But actually, I had, this is for me a lifelong message in the fact that often you can look at what's in your own hands and think, what is this among so many? I have a frog in my throat right now. I don't know what's going on. But you can, you can look at your, what may in man's eyes appear to be pitiful amount. And you can look at that and think, absolutely nothing can be done with that imagine that little boy that day thinking well I've got my lunch sorted I came prepared tough on these lot they didn't come prepared did they but I've got my lunch box so I'm just fine and he could have sat and eaten his lunch all to himself but he didn't he put his littleness in the hands of the master and the master did a great thing with it and it's the same of our lives if we would just stop saying I've got nothing to give who am I I literally have nothing to give. I've got nothing. If we would stop doing that and put our nothingness in the hands of a master, it's actually more than enough because he's more than enough. (laughs) And we've seen God time and time again provide in crazy, crazy ways. I'm sorry, I don't know what's going on with my throat right now. I feel like I've got something in there. I remember in Kenya once having to eat ants for lunch. It's got better, I trust you, trust me. If you want to come out, we'll feed you good, don't worry. But when I'm there by myself, and Brittany's been there by herself, so she knows. When we're there by ourselves, we just eat what the kids eat. And t- this particular day, the lunch was ants. Fried ants. But these particular ants were large flying ants. And you're supposed to remove the wing before you eat it. And I thought I had. Apparently had not, because I had a wing lodged for about three months and had a consistent cough for about three months. It was lovely. <clears throat> it's a glamorous life. Anyway, so I feel like I've got an ant's wing lodge. What did you feed me at lunch? Did you sneak some ants in there? But time and time again, I'm not saying you put ants in, it was beautiful. Uh, Time and time again, we've seen Jesus just do incredibly wild things to provide in a way that seems ridiculous. And I've had multiple times of that. I remember in 2006, we started, we worked for an evangelist called Nathan Morris, 
and he ran a ministry, evangelistic ministry, called Shake the Nations. And I guess I was kind of his humanitarian arm. So at that point, we were known as Shake the Nations one by one. And um, I was going out. You see, my passion is you can't go to a hungry man on the street and say, God loves you, but then walk on by and leave him hungry because where's the love? You know, show them the love and then tell them about Jesus. And um, and so I was doing feeding programs out there. And, and we were so little. We weren't even a ministry. We we were just we just had a heart for the poor. And so I'd done a little bit of fundraising and I had enough money to feed 50 people. That was it. And so I had these precious women in Sierra Leone cooking this box of rice. I will never forget it. They they did it in a a blue Tupperware. Everyone here knows what Tupperware is, right? I said it in America, and they all kind of just looked at me like, huh? Um, We had a blue Tupperware bowl, and it had enough rice in there to feed 50 people. And in Sierra Leone, they don't cook to an excess. If it feeds 50 people, it won't feed 51, it won't feed 49, it will feed 50. And I had these precious women doing this this rice for me because nobody wants to taste my cooking. And um, I learned quickly, preach the gospel and then feed them. If you do it the other way around, they'll go. <laughs> so um, I arrived at the venue knowing I got food to feed 50 people. And when I arrived, there was 100 people there. And I'm thinking, oh dear, I've like not got enough food. Everyone's going to think I've got them here under false pretensions. False pretensions. It's going to reflect badly on the gospel. This is terrible. You would think I'd think, oh, great, more people to hear the gospel. But no, (laughs) not this woman. I was panicking. And so we preached the gospel, and then it came to serving the rice. And I just kept praying over the rice and serving it out. It wasn't until the very end when a man came up to me and said, there's a family who were too ill that couldn't come out today. We were doing it in, um, it was like a derelict bus station. In Sierra Leone, there's a lot of amputee victims from the war. (coughs) But due to the lack of funding, there is no the benefits and if you've got no arms you can't work if you've got no legs you can't go out and earn a living and so they they were all living all these amputee victims were living in this derelict bus shelter and that's where we're doing the, the feeding program and he said this one particular family couldn't come out because they were too ill and could we scrape the leftovers into their washing basket yeah sure i'm, I'm a bit slow to catch on yeah, sure. So we're scraping the leftovers from this little blue box into this washing bowl. And it was only after it was in, I'm thinking, I don't get this, because the leftovers in the washing bowl is much bigger than the blue box I started with. I, I, like, I didn't get it. Slow to catch on. The next day, we go to another venue. You'd think I'd learn to feed more than 50 and go prepared, but no, not this Yorkshire woman. And uh, the next day I arrived at a venue with, again, the same Tupperware box to feed 50 people. <clears throat> and I kid you not, when I walked into the room, there was over 200 people there. Yeah, it didn't feel like a wow moment. I was stood there and I'm thinking, okay, I was with one of the girls, me and two girls, on our own in the outbacks of Sierra Leone, with 200 very hungry people who have been promised a meal. It makes a good story afterwards, but let me tell you, at the time, it was not good at all. And I remember stood there thinking, my friend's a bit bigger than I am. She can maybe look after herself a bit better, but I don't stand a chance. So I kid you not, there was a fire exit right there. So I'm preaching the gospel, and the whole time I'm preaching the gospel, all I'm thinking is, that's where I'm going to run. And like, my little legs can go. If my life's under threat, I'll run faster than I've ever run in my life. And I remember we were serving the food, and boy, was I praying, stirring that rice and praying. And... When you're feeding the hungry, don't give them an appetizer. You know, feed the belly full. And so <clears throat> we give these big, huge portions. And we had a couple of local ladies helping to serve the food. And one of the women, she came up to me and she said, you need to give smaller portions because we've not got enough food. I'm thinking, you're a boy, do I know that? But I'm just going to keep feeding. I may as well feed as many as I can really well. So I carried on serving the food and giving out the same size portion. She came up a second time. She said... I'm telling you, and by now the rice is maybe halfway down and we've not even fed a quarter. And she said, I'm telling you now, you need to really slow down your portions, give much smaller portions because they're not going to all eat. We're just going to run out. But I kept thinking of what God had done yesterday, you know? And what if, just what if? So I carried on giving the same size portion, just carried on. A third time this woman came up, but by this time my rice was maybe like this in the bottom of my little blue box. By now, I'm seriously, that fire exit's got my name all over it. 
And I had a moment of, she's right. She's really right. I should have given smaller portions. I'm going to have to just reduce from now and just see if I can just get a, a few more mouths fed. But I looked across at my friend, and my friend is really... She, you would never ever see her on a microphone. She's a behind the scenes woman, you know. She doesn't want to be seen or heard, but she's fearful and she's loyal and she's amazing. And all she did, <clears throat> she didn't run die shot and die over me. She didn't quote scriptures at me. All she did was look at me and nod. That was it. But that was all I needed just to say, I'm with you. If we die, we die together, but I'm with you. <laughs> you know what? We're an army together. It's not about one person out doing something. We're an army together and we're so much stronger together. Yeah. You know, look how many of us in this room today, if we all united with the same, same message, we could really change this nation. We could seriously change this nation. And just her nodding gave me the courage to stick to my guns and say, no, we're going to carry on giving this size portion. And I strongly believe had I had I gone back on it and give smaller portions, we would have definitely run out. But I remember serving the last three plates. <clears throat> Literally every grain of rice was out of that box. It was like clean as clean. And there were three plates on the table in front of me. And I'm thinking, okay, this is my moment. Get your running shoes on. And all of a sudden, this same woman who had come up to me three times and said, you need to give smaller portions. She came up and she said, well, that's it. It's three spare plates. Thank you, Jesus. I'm not going to die today. Hallelujah. And time, and I know, I have no idea how God did it. I literally have no idea how he did it, but he did it. And he, he taught me something very precious that day. He taught me that actually he loves the poor far more than I do. And if I care, how much more so does he? And every person in that room ate a huge amount of food that day and nobody died. Glory to God. And it was just, amazing to see the provision of God in a way that I could have never imagined and in the natural there was no way it could happen but when you step into the vision of God that's when the miraculous kicks in in Matthew 17 verses 24 to 27 it says this after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum the collectors of two drachma temple tax came to Peter and said doesn't your teacher pay the tax temple yes he does I love Peter does anybody else just really connect with Peter in here? He just says what he thinks, whether it's wrong or right. He just goes for it, and he's a passionate person. If I, if I could, obviously I want to be with Jesus, but if I could go back in time other than Jesus, I'd want to be around Peter. He's just, he excites me. He's, you know, he does some silly things like I do, so I connect with that. But Peter says, yes, he does. He probably didn't even know whether he did or didn't, but he was just standing up for Jesus. And when Peter came to the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom? It was Simon Peter was the full name, for anyone who's not sure. It's not talking to a different person. And he asked, and he said, whom, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxi, taxes? Is it from their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we do not cause offence, go to the lake and throw out your lifeline. Take the first fish that you catch, open its mouth, and you will find four drachma coin in it. Take it out and give it to them for your taxes and for mine. And you know, so many times God will provide through the most crazy ways that you couldn't possibly imagine. He will provide where... If you sat and strategized the, the vision and plan God's given you, if you sit down and work out in your way how it's going to happen, it's not going to make sense because actually he's going to do it. He's going to take it on. And our, our pastor in America always says, God's will, God's bill. And he's proved that time and time again. I remember fast forward now. Um, in, so in 2009, I was going out to Kenya to do a, a short term uh, it was going to be a freedom program again. But before, every time I went with the evangelist, I would, I would pray and say to God, okay, what do you want Shape the Nations one by one to do in this particular nation? I didn't want to just do things for the sake of it. I wanted to know what he wanted me to do. And in 2009, he spoke to me as clear as the day when I was 18. And he said, now's the time, look for land. 
I was like a kid at Christmas. You've, you've got to see, I'd waited a long time for this moment. And I was super excited. So my first day in Kenya, I met with the pastor who had coordinated all the huge gospel campaigns and dealt with everything for the evangelist. So I knew he was a trustworthy man and a man of influence. And I said, um, I sh- began to share with him about what God had said when I was 18 and what God had just said now. And his eyes just lit up and he said, Becky, I've been just been given three acres of land. And my passion is for orphans, but I'm just a Kenyan guy. The land is yours. I will give it you today. It's signed over to you. Go for it and I will support you. I was like, yes, thank you, Jesus. And so, you know, it's all exciting. It's, it's finally coming to pass. You know, I'm, I'm super excited. Everything's wonderful. The birds are singing. The sky's blue. And then I get the bill from the builders and the architect. I'm just a girl from Yorkshire. My dad was a postman. My mum was a cleaner. We have nothing, basically. We used to spend our holidays in Mablethorpe, as I was just sharing with Joe. Two weeks in a caravan in Mablethorpe. Don't know how I did that, but I loved it at the time. Loved it. I go there now and after an hour. But anyway, no offence to anyone from Mablethorpe. Just ruined off the room there. <laughs> yeah, where's my fire exit? And um, so we had nothing. And I had this dream, which I believed was from God, about building a children's home. And I got this land quite miraculously, and everything was fitting into place. But I was given a bill, and the bill was for about £120,000 in total. And I had £1,000. Now, the bill may as well have been for £10 million because when you have nothing... You feel like it's 10 million and actually believing God for 120 grand. I didn't even have a mortgage that big at that point. And I just thought, how on earth is that going to happen? Like, there is no way it can happen. I got the bill in the year 2011. And in that year, my little boy was born. And unfortunately, when Josiah was born, he was born extremely poorly. We almost lost him twice. He was ventilated and had five major surgeries. And we spent the first year, well, the whole year of 2011, but the first year of his life, just in hospital. And there was no going around churches, raising awareness. There was no funding technique. There was no strategy in place to bring in this huge amount of money that I did not have. And for a year, everything was stopped for one little life. Now, that's ironically our passion with One by One. It's to stop for the one. You know, so I meet so many people who, because they can't do everything, they do nothing. You know, because we can't change the entire world, they decide to not change anybody's world. And I was determined that actually each of us can be world changers because we can change the world of the person in front of us. And if we'll stop for the one in front of us and meet them at their point of need, and then the one after that, and the one after that, then actually we will change the world. And it's based on John 4 where Jesus stops for the woman at the well. And in changing her life, the whole village then gets to know Jesus. And that's our heartbeat with one by one. And so in 2011, everything stopped to focus on one life, but it was my little baby's life. And just to love him through, just to see him through. But what happened was we'd get checks through the mail for from people who would just say, I don't know why, but I just feel to send you this. We'd have little old ladies at our church come up and just put £20 in our hands and say, put that towards your little project, love. <laughs> and... Um, it was just the way God supplied was remarkable we had a couple of huge donations but we had a real lot of small 10 and 20s from faithful loyal people who just wanted to bless and be a blessing and I saw God bring in every single cent of that money and so we opened the doors of the children's home on the 12th of the 12th of the 12th and the way God provided was remarkable the bishop we work with out in Sierra Leone says this. He says, if you believe the ridiculous, you'll see the miraculous. And obviously, that bill sent ridiculous. But we saw the miraculous. All right, so point number one, preparation. Point number two, provision. Point number three, protection. Acts 28, I'm just going to read the first couple of verses because of the sake of time. It says, once safely on shore, we found out that... This is Paul speaking. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built fires and welcomed us because it was raining. Now, they'd just been shipwrecked. Let me put this in context. They'd just been shipwrecked at this time. So they'd arrived on this island, like literally just rescued, saved their lives out of the water. So the, the locals made a fire to try and warm them back up. 
Paul gathered round, round a pile of bushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for although he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. <coughs> but Paul shook off the snake into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. You know, I was just speaking with Joe before about how crowds can sometimes be fickle. Um, we were in a revival. We had the honor of being part of a revival in 2010 out in Mobile, Alabama. It was with the evangelist we'd been working for, and um, the evangelist we worked for really has the gift of healing upon him. And so we went out, and we were in uh, Pastor John Kilpatrick's church. Now, Pastor John Kilpatrick was the pastor during the Brownsville revival, and um, a real good man of God. And we had an amazing, exciting time out there. One honor to be part of something so huge, you know. And while we were there, I mean, Matt was my husband was only the number two. But people would come and they were just lavish us. They were so kind to us. I mean, that southern hospitality gained me about 30 pounds. Like pecan pie and all kinds of incredible, wonderful stuff. And it was so exciting. We had, you know, people just wanted to be around us and cook for us or take us out for meals. It was amazing. Like, I'm not going to pretend we were hardworking. It was amazing. But all of a sudden, I got pregnant, which was great. I came back, and as you know, I had my little boy who was really poorly. And all of a sudden, there were no crowds. You know? There were some loyal people in my life, but all the crowds had gone. And in the time where we were at our lowest, there were no masses. There were no crowds of people wanting to cook and bake us pecan pie. And we learn a real lesson there that actually you can never depend upon a crowd. Never base your identity of who you are upon other people. Because if you do that, you'll crumble and fall. But if you base who you are upon who he says you are, that's when you'll stand strong. And crowds can be fickle as, as Paul learned. But the way that God protected him really launched them and so then they ended up spending a lot longer in Malta than they'd intended and they saw many people saved and healed <coughs> and the God God always turns things around and I've seen God protect us in just remarkable ways I'm going to tell you one story and then we're going to show the clip um the second clip but I'm going to share one quick story about when I was in Sierra Leone and this was 2008 this time and um we were in a convoy of cars so the evangelist was in the front car, obviously, the air-conditioned car. And um, and then there was another group of people in the second car. I was in the third car, so you can see where I ranked. And uh, I was in the third car, I'm joking. And um, we were driving down these country roads. We were going from one large city to a total different part of Sierra Leone, so it was a huge drive. And we'd been in the car for a couple of hours, and then all of a sudden, our car just like stopped. It just, I'm not very mechanical, but it broke down. And um, at first, I, everything's an adventure. I treat life as an adventure. So I'm just like, oh, it'll get sorted. It'll be fine. Um, we're, we're out and we're having a wonder. But all of a sudden, the afternoon sun suddenly went to dusk. And it started getting really dark. And I was fine until our Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone driver began to panic. When he panicked, I panicked. And he was panicking because there were two white girls in literally the middle of nowhere in the outbacks of Sierra Leone. And it's pitch black. So he was like, you two better hide in the back of the car. Okay. And um, he'd, he'd managed to, he lifted up the, I can say bonnet here. I said, I, I was telling this story in a church last week and I said, they lifted up the bonnet and he could see people begin to just talk to each other like bonnet. A bonnet to us is clearly the front end of the car where all the engine is. A bonnet to them in Louisiana was a weird hat. Like an Easter bonnet. And you could see them sat there thinking, why would the mechanic look under a hat? And B, why was she wearing a bonnet? And it suddenly clicked, they don't use that word here. So I made the mistake of saying trunk, I'm looking for you, there you are. And then said trunk, which didn't make sense either, because it was the hood, in the hood. And uh, it was the hood they needed. So anyway, uh, the driver's under the hood, and he's looking at the engine. And if I did that, I'd look, and I'd be like, metal part, metal part metal part yep it's all there 
And he thankfully knew more about mechanics than I do. And so he realized that it was a certain electrical wire that we needed to go from one electric part to another metal part. And it would connect and that was what would get us going. But we were in the middle of nowhere needing this certain wire. All of a sudden comes along a man on a bicycle. And on the front of his bicycle, he had a little basket. You know, like this big, like you'd see on a child's bicycle. A little basket this big. And this man just so happened to have the exact piece of electrical wire we needed. He also just so happened to know how to fit it. And he also just so happened to do it for free, even though we're white, which doesn't happen if you're in Sierra Leone. That does not happen. And he fit the wire, the car got going, and then he pedaled off on into the sunset. And I was like, has that just happened? Like, seriously, did that just happen? This is ridiculous. And I'm not saying the guy was an angel, but I'm not saying he wasn't. And um, he fitted it, our car got going, and off we went. We were totally safe, nothing happened. Alive to tell the tale. Woo! All right, I'm going to show a little clip, and then back up so it's the second one this time and you have full permission my husband is from Barnsley so has a Barnsley accent you will see my husband soon with a very strong Texan accent so feel free to laugh away to a story you'll see only on News 5. A local missionary had been to Africa recently put area doctors to the test when he became sick. He didn't have Ebola, but he did have malaria. News 5's Pat Peterson talks to the man and his wife about the rare condition that nearly killed him. Matthew Murray says it's a miracle he's alive. I looked at my wife and I said to her, I feel like I'm going to die. This is so bad. Four weeks ago, Murray got violently ill after a missionary trip in East Africa. I had the, most, the worst headache you could possibly imagine. I was shivering, shaking, sweating. The British missionary started feeling bad while he was working here in Baldwin County on a local fundraising project for One by One, a nonprofit faith-based organization that helps orphaned and abandoned children in Kenya. Murray went to an Eastern Shore doctor when his condition worsened. He said, my God, we've got to get you to hospital now. This is very serious. Murray was admitted to Thomas Hospital, and because Murray had recently traveled to Africa and showed symptoms of Ebola, doctors tested him for the deadly disease. I'm the only man in Alabama they've tested for it. So they put me in an isolation room for three days. My wife can't touch me. My, my best friend Nick can't touch me. They have to wear Ebola suits and masks, and it's quite traumatic. Murray did not have Ebola, but was diagnosed with malaria. Thankfully, they came back and said, you don't have Ebola, you have malaria. Um, and I'm thinking, okay, that's not too bad. Murray's condition deteriorated. His major organs were shutting down. Mom, Dad, I love you. I'm dying. This is it. I'm sorry, but I've got to go. And I've got a little three-year-old son, Josiah. So, Josiah, I'm so sorry, son, but you're not going to have a daddy. I'm not going to be able to raise you. I'm so sorry, but I've, I'm so sick. I'm dying. My wife, Becky, I love you so much. Back in England, Murray's condition made news headlines. Doctors prepared Matthew's wife, Becky, for the worst. I began to panic. I just, everything went through my head. How can I raise our little boy without his daddy? I thought I was losing my husband. Becky asked friends and family to pray, and thanks to social media, people all over the world turned to their faith as Matthew fought the deadly disease. When we had people all around the world praying for us, it was the most beautiful thing and it meant the world to us. Matthew was released from the hospital yesterday and was given a clean bill of health. People say America's got the best health care system in the world, and I can, I can testify for that now. That's true. The missionaries say they'll continue to help African children. God saved him. I know that God has a plan and a purpose for his life. The couple says Matthew's brush with death has made them stronger and more determined to help those in need. On the Baldwin County Beat, Pat Peterson, News 5. Thomas Hospital would not comment on Matthew Murray's treatment, citing medical privacy laws. Meanwhile, Murray is still weak and will spend the next few days at a friend's house in Orange Beach. Next month, he and his wife will return to Kenya to continue their missionary work. This time last year... I was took into a conference room and told my 27-year-old husband had two, maybe three hours left to live. 
the malaria, if, it, if you have 5% in your blood, it's severe. His went to 50. I'm a nurse by trade. I'm a pediatric nurse. And once your blood's that far gone, you're gone. And I had a real battle going on between the promises of God, what he'd spoke over our lives. And I know that when you're in God's will, there's a, a grace and a protection that's upon you. And it just was like everything felt like it smashed to pieces on the floor. And I remember just every emotion going through my head, everything just circling round. I mean, how on earth do you tell his mother, who was back in England? And just, it was just horrible. And at that point, it was still in isolation. So at the point where my 27-year-old husband's got a few hours left, I couldn't even hold his hand. I couldn't even kiss his face. I couldn't. I could be in the room as long as I wore a bowler suit, but that was it. And it felt like everything was shattered. All the vision, everything was gone. And then all of a sudden, we put the play out for people to pray. And firstly, God started to touch his body and start to heal him. But God also did something in me as the wife. You see, my thoughts were running kind of wild. You know, how am I going to carry on looking after my babies in Kenya? How on earth do I pay a mortgage? How do I raise my little boy by myself? Everything kind of was going, how do I just do life without him? You know, he's my best friend. <clears throat> and he's, <clears throat> he's a quirky guy, but he's a fun guy to do life with. He really is. Don't let him hear this because he'll get a big head. But I can't, I can't imagine doing life without him. I don't want to do life without him. And in that moment, just everything seemed to go blank for me. But all of a sudden, after three days of kind of just trudging through it, just trying to keep my head above water, I kept just thinking if I can just keep breathing, just get through it, just get through it, just make it. And then all of a sudden, I woke up. He was admitted on the Thursday. I was told on the Friday his life hung in the balance. I was told on the Saturday I had hours left. This by now on the Tuesday. And every single day, the nurses were still telling me he definitely will die. It was wonderful. And a very reassuring words. But they didn't want to get my hopes up because the malaria levels were coming down. They didn't want me to get my hopes up because in the natural, he definitely was going to die. And um, I remember on the Tuesday waking up, and the situation hadn't changed at all. He was still being tested for Ebola. His heart was in failure. His lungs were in failure. His kidneys were in failure. And his liver was in failure. He didn't have much left. Nothing in the national changed. But I woke up Tuesday and all of a sudden, the peace from Philippians 4-7. The peace that surpasses understanding will guard your heart and it will guard your mind. And rather it just being a Sunday school verse I'd learned as a child. Instead, it was something that enabled me to walk through the darkest days of my life. And it gave me a peace that didn't make any sense at all. I should not have had peace. But the, that peace really carried me through. And I believe that was because people were praying for us and upholding us. There's power in prayer and there's a protection that comes upon your life. I'm going to pause it here just because I've waffled on far too long. Um, but I've got another session, so I'll pick up the last two points and finish it off and then do my, my next session then. Um, but I just want to encourage you, if God has given you a promise, if he's given you a vision, hold fast through that season of preparation. Hold fast to it. Keep hold. Don't rush on and create your Ishmael. Hold on for your Isaac because Isaac is coming. The protection will come. The provision will come. So hold fast. Thank you.